This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our show today on another lovely San Diego morning. Ahanu, this is getting to be a bad habit. I know. It's When you look up in the skies in San Diego, you see blue skies all over. And then, of course, you see those fast-flying jets that take off from Miramar Air Force Base. And there are many people who report that this is what is seen in the skies all over the world that it may be just military stuff. But more about that in a short little while. I want to report something really, really interesting that happened to us during this past weekend. And it was a guy, we were running a workshop. It was the Akashic Records workshop, how to read the Akashic Records. And one of the attendees, one of the participants, came up to me and he was so proud to show me what he had on his phone. He had just come back from a fishing weekend, way up, I don't know, Montana or somewhere. And he had on his phone an image that he took, or, or his partner took, of him fishing on the lake. And right there in the background was this great big white light glow in the background. And he was all excited about this. And I was excited about it too. And the reason I was excited about it, Angel Rose, is because you know Ever since we've been together, ever since we've been married, I have always, always, always been a little skeptical about this whole alien business because of the fact that I've never seen one. And I'm the kind of guy that I have to... Typical male, Mohammed. you got to see it to believe it. <laughs> I do. But, you know, that's my nature. And also, there's another thing also about me, and that is that I'm an artist and I paint spirit pictures. And I'm also very, very familiar with the techniques of Photoshop and all of that. And whenever I see these alien pictures on the Internet or Facebook or wherever, I always study them to look for where it's hoaxed. You know, I always try to discount it. It's my, it's my nature. It's my upbringing. I constantly look for the flaws in it. But when this guy came up to me with his picture, I couldn't find any flaws on it because it was on his phone. It was taken, obviously, very recently. The date was on it. It was of him in the picture with this big light behind him. So I found myself saying, oh, shit, <laughs> there may be something more to this than meets the eye. And, of course, we're very well read in this whole area because we're in the Akashic Records all the time. And it's seldom enough that you do meet somebody who actually has had the real-life experience of having met or, or having spoken to or dealt with any contactees of any kind. We've had a few on our radio show, and they're absolutely genuine and sincere, but it always comes back down to me, you know, do you believe this? And I find that I'm growing more and more into believing it now than not. And, you know, something made me laugh this morning, and that was, I took a quick look into Facebook, and there was this picture of a, a, a cornfield, and the caption on it was, uh, no more no more aliens creating crop circles because the it's too dangerous to land in these genetically modified corn and wheat fields. <laughs> I had to laugh at that. 
Well, you know, I've always believed there were extraterrestrials. Um, I feel that we actually are seeded from them. I've always remembered that, let's just say. Even when I was young, you know, I, I knew there was not supposed to be any death. You've heard me say that a million times. I was quite surprised, you know, to find out again here that people got sick and died and has always upset me. It still upsets me because I don't believe that that was the way it was. So with that, the picture is huge. The story is huge. And this is the reason why we've invited our guest on today, Lawrence R. Spencer, who edited the book Alien Interview. And we really are very interested in many aspects of this discussion with him today, not only about the interview itself through uh, Matilda McElroy and her papers she sent to him, but the whole idea of the alien presence on Earth, the whole idea of what has happened to our history, uh, the state of our Earth. As you know, we've been interested in those subjects for years, and Lawrence has some really interesting uh, things that he has written and things that he believes about the Earth. <clears throat> so we do want to discuss all those with him, and it will be, in my opinion today, a mixed bag of an interview, and some of this material could be very upsetting to people to learn the extent of uh, what's happened to our earth and our history and what has happened to our ability to be immortal. They may find some of this disturbing, but as you and I believe, the truth needs to be told, and we need to you know, take a look at the reality of our situation here and what we can do about it. You know, you and I are always looking for what's the solution, not just what's the problem. But we do feel people need to be aware of the problem before they can uh, have a solution or know exactly what they're dealing with. So this is our intention for having Lawrence on today. And his book, Alien Interview, has, has been very controversial. If you get online and you, you read about it, some people believe it's a hoax, other people believe it's real. And in reviewing that part of this, I came to the conclusion that it doesn't really matter whether it's real or not, because the underlying information is what needs to be discussed. So I'm looking forward to having this conversation with Lawrence today. Okay, before we bring him on though Angel Rose we want to make a little announcement and it fits very well actually into what we're speaking about today because we read Lawrence Spencer's book Alien Interview last week and since then we have packed up most of our house because we're actually going to visit my own relations in Ireland as well as visit the sacred sites and many of those sacred sites have been known to be locations where aliens have landed or been seen to come in and out of and in fact we had our own little experience over on the west of Ireland one time in a place called oh gosh the name of it now escapes me no no over on the west of Ireland in Sligo oh Queen Maeve's tomb is that what you mean yeah but just down from it there's a, pla a location where I went inside a megalithic oh, tomb oh that remember? place yeah. uh, Carol Keel Carol Keel that's it I should know that of all people I should know it but Karakil and I went inside this megalithic tomb, and once I was inside it, I felt this crazy kind of a down pushing of 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 energy. It really felt as if it was trapping me inside. It was hard to explain, and perhaps it's only somebody who is sensitive to earth energies would understand it. 
because most people might say, ah, it was just in your imagination, you're making it up. You know, you might have felt claustrophobic or something. And there would be all these kinds of explanations. But I didn't feel claustrophobic. There was none of that. It was actually an energetic kind of a down-pressing on top of me. And I was inside. And Angel Rose, you remember, you were outside. And while you were outside, you noticed something coming down on top of the megalithic tomb while I was inside. So here was me experiencing something on the inside, you experiencing something on the outside, and they both, when we both, when I came out, we both corroborated each other's experiences. Now that was amazing, and I think that was probably the closest I came to any kind of an alien encounter. But when we're talking about packing up and going to Ireland for a few months over the summertime, these are the kinds of places we will be visiting. We will be going to these places to explore more about what actually goes on in these places and what kind of energies are happening and we may indeed take a little hop across the the irish sea to stonehenge and the vale of pusey and various other locations where uh, crop circles come down quite frequently but we've heard also that they're few and far between and scarce this year for whatever reason i don't think it's to do with the gmos but however let us make the little announcement about our Akashic Record Workshop that's going on in Ireland. Real quick, Angel Rose. Yeah, it will be uh, at Butler House in Kilkenny on July 12th and 13th. If anyone's interested in attending, you can go to worldofempowerment.com. Under the events category, if you scroll down, you'll see the icon for that. And we're also teaching a psychic surgery workshop in August. That is also there if you scroll down if you're interested in that. Uh, we will be putting up a list of other classes uh, very, very shortly that we'll be doing in Ireland. So uh, look for those as well, but there's still room if you're planning on attending, and we've got a nice crowd gathering already for that. We'll also be teaching with our favorite homeopath in Ireland. Uh, we will be, he's got a very unique way to practice homeopathy energetically and we will be assisting him in a class there in the end at the end of July i believe it's a 3 day workshop we'll be posting that on our events page very soon as well and uh he just sent an email this morning actually with an article about homeopathy is being attacked further now in Europe so uh once again the witch hunt is on everybody and hopefully the way that our friend teaches bypasses the need for physical remedies. So you'd be able to practice homeopathy by tuning into the spirits of remedies rather than the actual pills. So this witch hunt, Angel Rose, we're going to ask our guest today, Lawrence Spencer, if that witch hunt has anything to do with aliens. Lawrence, can you introduce him, Ahano, please? Hi there, Lawrence. You're very, very welcome. Thank you, Ahanu and Angu Rose. I'm delighted to be with you. I've been studying your website and watching your wonderful video about your marriage at the, at the Hill of Tara and <laughs> to um, the, the mound of North and Doth. Right. Yes. Uh, fascinating. Oh. Absolutely fascinating. I've been there myself, but I'd love, I'd love to go. <laughs> yeah, we have an intention to uh, <clears throat> try to piece together some history that if we can, we know that history's been really manipulated, and 
one of our thoughts in the back of our mind is to um, go to places and try to tune in and piece together some history as best we were able. So we did do that a little bit at Newgrange a few years back, but we've changed so much since then that I'd like to go back and see what else we can retrieve. Now, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Lawrence, about having a look at our website too, and I'm always fascinated by the background work that people have done before they'll write a book. And in your case, you have a special interest and expertise in the books of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, of course, is a, a great yes. uh, person in the city of Dublin. In fact, there's a wonderful pub close to Fibsborough there called the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, named after him. And, of course, he was the, the Sherlock Holmes originator. And uh, there's absolutely fabulous series on BBC TV at the moment about uh, like a new up-to-date version of Sherlock Holmes, which we've been tracking and following, and it's really, really fascinating because they're bringing in yeah, I've these. Seen it. I've oh, you've seen it? Yes, isn't that cool? Oh, certainly, yes, yes. They play it on television in the United States as well. Yes, and I like it because my granddaughter is a huge. My granddaughter, my oldest granddaughter, is a huge fan of that show. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't stop watching it. Where we we yeah. had it on Netflix, and every night we had to put a, <laughs> a new episode on. Yes, yeah. I found it fascinating <laughs> yeah. because it brought into the modern era, you know, the, the ability to be able to perform psychic activity. Do you know, it was, it was an amazing uh-huh. awareness, like Sherlock was displaying an awareness beyond the normal, do you know. Right. And uh, I, I think that yeah. everybody should or indeed has that ability, but perhaps it's not awakened. Now, let me just do a yeah, very well, quick... Certainly, certainly Conan Doyle did. Uh, during yes. Conan Doyle's life, he was, he was a very great student and advocate of spiritualism. Yes. Uh, and invested yes. a great deal of his life and wrote several books on the subject. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you are a business consultant, Lawrence, and you're a multimedia right. I, I used producer. To be. I, I retired, but I used to be, yeah. Right, okay. And you, your books, though, you explore this whole area of fantasy and facts about the universe, physical and spiritual, of course, as well as history and art and mythology and spiritual immortality and logic and science fiction. And these are all areas that are very, very close to our hearts. We love this area. We would, you know, if you could put a label on somebody, and, and we're not really into labels, we, we don't really like to call ourselves anything, but we, we we would aspire to being like a consciousness researcher, let's say, much the same as yourself. Mm-hmm. And, of course, your book, okay. let's zero in now on this book, Alien Interview, because in that you would certainly have explored the facts and fantasies of aliens. Can you give us a little bit of background as to how that came about? Yeah, first of all, uh, I didn't write that book. I've written nine books of my own, um, but the Alien Interview book was sent to me uh, by a nurse who was uh, stationed at the 509th Bomb Group near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947 uh, at the time of the, the crash of the UFO near the, that base. And that, that base is located about 100 miles from Alamogordo, New Mexico, where the nuclear bombs were developed, which were ultimately dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II by the Enola Gay bomber that was deployed from the 509th Bomb Group and sent to Japan to 
destroy those cities and, and put an end to the war with nuclear bombs. Um, so the nurse, uh, who, identif who identifies herself as uh, Matilda O'Donnell McElroy, which is not her real name, um, as it turns out, she and several other nurses who were and other personnel who were stationed at the 509 Bomb Group in July 1947, who witnessed um, events surrounding the, the crash of the UFO and the recovery of the bodies and disposition of the bodies uh, and so forth, as well as the interview that occurred that she did with the pilot. All of those people disappeared immediately thereafter within days and were never heard from again. Uh, and her, she was put into, at the end of this episode, which lasted for about six weeks, a series of inter interviews that she conducted um, she also disappeared. She says in the letters that she sent to me, uh, she was placed in a, a kind of witness protection program by the U.S. military to prevent her from interacting with anyone, really, um, regarding this, this matter. So the way, the way the material came to me was, um, uh, I had kind of serendipitously or coincidentally received a phone number for this woman. I didn't know who the phone number was for in the process of my research for a book that I published in 1997, the first book I wrote called The Oz Factors, mm -hmm. which is, has to do with the history of uh, humanity and logic and Western civilization and so forth, mm -hmm. completely disrelated from anything having to do with UFOs and aliens and all of that sort of thing, and which is, interestingly, a subject that I was never interested in, especially, and never studied it, never paid attention to it, and really never have, nice. um, except to the degree that information comes to me, and now I'm just kind of <laughs> become immersed in it because of the, the popularity of this book, but um, anyway, the in 1997, I, I was, or just before that, I was researching this book, and the editor of, of that book, I mean, her name is Carol South, she used to be a big fan of Art Bell, the Art Bell radio show. Uh, right, After yeah, we're, we're familiar with Art from yeah. way back, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so she would, she would stay up late at night and listen to Art Bell, which I didn't have time to do because I was working full-time job and I had to go to bed at night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Stay up. And, you know, at that time I wouldn't, I don't think I know that I would have been particularly interested in what was going on in those shows anyways. But anyway, she found somehow this phone number. I don't know exactly how. It wasn't from the Art Bell show. It was, I don't know where she got it from. She gave me this phone number kind of in passing and said, here's a phone number of somebody who's supposed to know about the Roswell crash. Maybe that would be interesting. So kind of as a lark, I called the phone number. And the, this lady answers the phone. And I introduced myself and explained that I was researching this book and what the book was about so forth, and um, she she was very cordial, and she was interested in, in the book, but she said um, she couldn't tell me anything. She had no information at all about about Roswell and all of that sort of thing, so I, I thanked her, and I said, well, I'll send you a copy of the book when it's published, which I did about a year or so later, uh, at address, an address that she gave to me, which is published in the book, um, I think in Montana, I think it is, Montana. Right. Anyway, so um, now I forgot all about it. Uh, I never had any correspondence or interaction with her after that. 
So about eight years later, I was received a big envelope in the mail from her, <clears throat> uh, postmarked from County Meath, Ireland. Yes, that's very. The, that's the where address. the Hill of Tara is located. Yeah, yeah, it's near near there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so it was postmarked from from her from County Meath, Ireland, and inside the envelope were copies of um, typewritten copies of uh, the transcripts of the interviews that were conducted at this Five and bomb group between um, military elements, including the nurse and uh, the, the surviving pilot of the crash of the UFO near near Roswell. Um, together with that were uh, a couple of letters that she, of explanation that she wrote to me, describing you know, what it was and why she sent it to me, and uh, uh, quite a few um, little handwritten notes or typed notes uh, that are placed in between the, the pages of the, the transcripts uh, by way of explanation or clarification of the content of the yeah. uh, information in the interview. So. Um, when I received all this, uh, I was rather, I was shocked, <laughs> frankly, because, you know, here I was in possession of what looked to me to be genuine top secret documents. Right. Um, I mean, I'm no expert on documents, certainly, but I thought, well, gosh, um, after I read the letters and read the information, I thought, if this really is authentic and this is what she says it is, which is a copy of these top secret um, transcripts of the uh, interview, then the best thing for me to do is just to be quiet about it and think about what to do with this. So uh, I don't want to be uh, discovered or accused of, of being in possession of stolen top secret documents, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And um, do, you, do you think, Lawrence, uh, that she... Anyway, so I... Do you think that she was getting old at that stage and perhaps just wanted some truth to come out? Like, what would have been her motivation, do you think, at that time to well, send she you? Says, she, says in the, she says very clearly in the, in the letters that she wrote, which are published in the book, I ultimately took uh, all of the material in the book and published it verbatim without altering one, one letter. Right. Uh, everything that I received from her, except the envelope, of course, is is in the book exactly as I received it. All I did to was kind of organize it in a typewritten fashion, and the sequence it seemed to me was was correct. Um, and then um, you know format it into a book and so forth. Since I by that time I had written several other books, so I knew all about how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I and then I wrote some introductory material for it and a disclaimer, you know. Uh, and published it just exactly the way it was received. But I spent six months or so, nearly full time, trying to verify or authenticate for myself whether or not this information was true. So I spent a tremendous amount of time on the internet, on Wikipedia, and other you know, related websites, trying to find out if uh, what information within the transcripts and the letters was was authentic or true or could be verified. And I, yeah. I discovered that. Um, as far as I could find, everything about it was accurate. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I'll just, what the heck, I'll just go ahead and publish it and I'll the, destroy the original documents because I don't want to be, you know, family and all of that sort of thing. I don't want to be 
And she says in her letter, I don't want your life to be endangered by the yeah. possession of this material. So yeah. I took that very seriously. Right. But I did publish it verbatim. Uh, and the reason, reason in her letter she said that she sent it to me was because she was 83 years old at that time. And she and her husband, who was, I gather, from Ireland, went there to, uh, to pass away, to commit, um, uh, self-administered euthanasia, um, because their bodies were very old and they had no more use for them in this life and they wanted to depart the body, uh, close nearby to Hill of uh, Tara and the mountains of Melt and in Ireland for, uh, I don't know exactly the reasons, but she says something to the effect that this is an appropriate place for us to depart from this life. Uh, so, of course, you know much, much more about that than, than yeah. I do, but um, well, if I should I'm just, fascinated to know about. Yeah, if I could just interject there real quick and perhaps offer uh, some kind of a little explanation as to why she might have chosen that. There is a the monument there, uh, very close to the two you mentioned, Nauth and Doubt. They're like satellite mounds. But the main mound that's there is called Newgrange. And on the morning of the winter solstice, the sun penetrates down a passageway that's impossible at any other time of the year. It's, it's accurate down to like one degree or something. But the sun can penetrate the inner chamber during that one window of 17 minutes. And... It's been speculated that what a lot of the ancient peoples did, they their souls traveled out the shaft of light to into another dimension during that little window of opportunity. So perhaps she was aware of these ancient rites and rituals or the, the energy of that wow. particular place. Yeah, I'm just offering that as a possibility. So this is only only occurs at the winter solstice, which is December some December, December. yeah, December twenty first, on the morning of 21st, the twenty first okay. for seventeen minutes. Oh, that's interesting because the letter the letter that she wrote to me was dated in August of that year. So they were all in Ireland at that time, which obviously they were because that's where the envelope was came from. Right. Um. They they may very well have um done as you suggest part of the body in conjunction yeah. with the, the solstice. Yeah, 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 that would... If she that, was aware of earth energies and portals and that kind of thing, which it seems she was, then that's a very feasible thing for her to do. That makes sense. I never I never understood what the significance was of those those monuments. I mean, I read a little bit about it, but I couldn't I couldn't figure out what what the possible tie-in might be, but that that would certainly explain it. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I mean, now, it's a better explanation than I've ever heard. Right. Now, here's the thing. You're very clear in the book about issuing that disclaimer, saying that it's not your material, that you transcribed everything verbatim, that there's, you know, you did write an absolutely wonderful section that explained the footnotes, for example, explain all the little issues and things that were going on around the episode. But the actual transcript themselves, you've You've rendered them verbatim. Now, why do you think, though, that you know, with your own, with your own exploration into the psychic world and into energy systems and interconsciousness and so on, why did you feel the need to distance yourself in that way? Why did you issue such a strong disclaimer? Well, um, that's a good question. I did it because um, I want, I want, I want to be very, very clear. 
to everyone since I've written other books of my own, and that this is in no way something that was written. This the material in this book wasn't really written by anyone per se. It was uh, the vast majority of the content of the book is just a, a reproduction of the, the interview transcripts, and these are military interviews. Each each interview has the day, the date and time, and of the of the interview, uh, the interviews were supervised and uh, conducted. And in the beginning, the, the questions posed to the pilot were created by military intelligence officers at the base. There were many, many, many leading military authorities, uh, all the top generals and admirals, and so forth, uh, various branches of military and uh, secret services, and political officials, and everything. Uh, many, many other people, as she mentions in the course of the, her letters and so forth, that uh, attended various parts of, of the proceedings during that six-week period in, uh, in Roswell. The interesting thing to me is that you know, I was able to kind of verify that the people that were mentioned in the letters and transcripts were actual people and so forth, but subsequently, since the time the book was published, I've been approached by some of the world's leading authorities on the subject of Roswell and UFOs and so forth, as well as uh, contact from several former CIA agents, all of whom assure me that this information is really quite factual um, in every detail. So, which has led me to an entirely different line of questioning and investigation, and I've had uh, the good fortune to become acquainted with um, the man, a man who's probably the world's leading authority on the subject of Ros Roswell, whose uh, his name is Ron Gardner, who's um, uh, been studying this information for 40 years, the events of Roswell and so forth. And he has personally interviewed 100 people who were witness, either first-hand or second-hand witnesses to the events of, of Roswell in 1947 and subsequently. Um, and, you know, he tells me that you know all of this is, is quite true, and um, it's all been long since verified. And that the bottom line is that the reason for the cover-up, uh, the extensive cover-up of, of the Roswell UFO crash and the events surrounding it, um, the reason is because of the information in these interviews. Um, this is something that is forbidden to be known by the public at large. Various government agencies, including uh, President Truman, the United States, and uh, a committee that was formed by, signed into to legislation by him called the Majestic 12, were formed to ensure that um, no further information could be made known or revealed or without serious alteration or obfuscation or something uh, to keep this kind of information away from. from general public knowledge. Uh, and to that end, um, the extent to which governments have gone to cover up the information in the transcripts is really appalling. I mean, it's just no cover-up has ever been covered up so thoroughly as this cover-up. Transcripts, it makes sense. Yeah. Now, when they contacted you afterwards, you said you made contact with CIA agents and various others. No, they, Did didn't, they didn't contact me directly. They contacted people that uh, other investigators. Oh, right, okay. People who know about Roswell. I was never, I've never ever been contacted to my knowledge. Yeah. Knowingly. I, I wondered by about that. Any government agency. 
Yeah, because did you at any time, through any avenue, ever be threatened because of this material? No. Amazingly enough, I oh, have wow. my the website. I built a website for about the book and a blog about the book um, several years ago. And I know that when the, the website first uh, was put up, that it was being monitored by uh, about 10 or 12 different government agencies. I, I can tell from the, uh, the signatures of uh, the uh, monitoring sites and so forth that mm. there were several Air Force agencies and other government agencies who monitored the site for maybe a year. Uh, I was never contacted. I did receive a couple of emails, well, probably four or five emails over the course of those years inquiring kind of um, subtly from people who were stationed at uh, several different Air Force bases in the United States in different locations. But nothing, nothing overt, nothing aggressive. Uh, nobody has ever come to my door. And I, I think the reason for that, Henry, is because the, the whole subject of Roswell and UFOs in general and uh, this kind of information has been so completely and thoroughly saturated with disinformation, false information, uh, misdirection, confusion, and so forth by the various uh, intelligence agencies of the world who specialize in in this kind of activity to ensure that, that no one really knows for sure what's going on. It's just a massive pile of conflicting information or missing information. Um, that I, I really seriously don't think that any government agencies are, are really threatened or afraid or uh, have the least bit of concern that that this kind of information being revealed now at this time, more than 60 years after the original event, will have any any threatening impact on uh, status quo. It's, they're very, very secure in their position, and they have unlimited power and unlimited money. And, and I just don't think that they're, they're perfectly willing for people to chat about it on Facebook or, you know, shows like this and talk about it and buzz about it all they want, but uh, it really... They've, they've done such a fantastic job of making the entire subject uh, indecipherable uh, that it becomes nothing more than a subjective opinion on the part of, of the public at large. Everyone has their own opinion. Everyone has a different point of view about it. And that's part of the reason I wrote the disclaimer also, is I realized that uh, for myself, as I started to, to read the material and study it and try to find footnotes to verify the information that, that every, everything about it seemed kind of eerily uh, subjective. There wasn't any proof. There's nothing that you can put your finger on that everyone could stand and agree and go, oh, yeah, this proves that all this is true. Even all the interviews that have been done with people who were witness to the events and people that I know about who uh, whose parents were actually there in the military. Uh, I've met several people like that and talked to them. All of this information, when relayed to readers and other people who are interested, is it becomes kind of a subject, subjective experience. There isn't any proof. There's no hard scientific <laughs> evidence, apparently. So I, I don't think the governments of the world are really concerned about what people talk about or what they read. Yeah. So, Lawrence, let's, let's go back a bit to the interviews themselves, and 
Matilda seems to be the only one who could receive telepathic communication uh, from Arrow. Is, is that the correct way to pronounce the alien's name, Arrow? Arrow, yes. Yes, okay. Uh, so why do you think there was? I mean, why was she the only one who could who could really hear that communication? Why do you think? Well, uh, she she says uh, I don't I don't think anything. My as I've explained to a lot of people before, I don't think my opinion is any more valuable than anyone else's opinion. Everyone can read the material for themselves. Everything that I know about the material is in the book exactly as it was received by me. Uh, and I really don't think it's my place to interpret it. It's my place to relay the information like a mailman delivers the mail. But uh, she does say very specifically <clears throat> in the book that her, if, when you read the whole thing and you get through to the end, you realize that she is actually a member of the same civilization, extraterrestrial, extraspatial, dimensional, whatever civilization, from which the members of the spacecraft came to Earth. Errol, the pilot of that craft, is an officer, um, an engineer, and the pilot for a uh, civilization that the nurse refers to as the domain. Uh, she says that uh, her understanding of the concept of the name of the civilization isn't necessarily the, the correct name, but for her purposes, she used the, the word domain. She says it could also be called the realm, the territory, the home, a number of other things. Um, but anyway, when you, you read the whole thing, you realize that the, the nurse is actually one of those personnel who has been incarnated on Earth as a result of a, of a incident that occurred um, about 8500 B.C. in the Himalaya Mountains, uh, wherein the uh, a unit of the, the domain, which is um, a kind of a military <clears throat> invasion force operation passing through this part of the, the galaxy <clears throat> at that time, was attacked. Their installation in the Himalaya Mountains was attacked by an existing uh, space fleet, which was in control of this uh, part of the galaxy, under the authority of the central government of this galaxy and many adjoining galaxies, which they refer to as the Old Empire. Uh, and the pilot says the Old Empire is not the actual name of this governmental agency, but it's what they it's kind of the, the word that they used to refer to it. Um, well, it turns out that the nurse was one of the members of, of 3,000 beings who were in this Himalayan installation that were attacked and destroyed captured by the old empire forces at that time. This would be about 10,000 years ago, more than 10,000 years ago. Um, and these these um, beings, disembodied, were captured, and they were brought, uh, kept on the earth, and they were put through um, a process that erased their memories, um, you know, their spiritual memories of who they, who they are, where they came from, their identities, their history, and so forth. And their memories were replaced by false false memories and false information, and they were then put into a uh, body on Earth, biological body, just like everyone else, uh, in, in a kind of a what we might refer to as a reincarnation, reincarnation activity, except that it was done intentionally and, and knowingly and administered by electronic. So 
the nurse has been here on this planet for 10,000 years, and the domain force has been searching to discover where all 3,000 members of, the, of this battalion disappeared to, and eventually discovered that all of their missing personnel were here on Earth. They were able to find them by through uh, their spiritual signature or fingerprint, so to speak. Apparently, every spiritual being has a uh, emanates a, a wavelength or a, a frequency of energy that's unique to them, like a fingerprint. They were able to identify where all these people were, what bodies they were in, inhabiting, and what they were doing, and so forth. But they have uh, in spite of all of their efforts, not being able to communicate with um, the members, their members, and restore their memory to them and, and rescue them, so to speak, from this uh, the situation they're in on this planet. So uh, part of the reason then becomes apparent when you read the entire book that part of the reason for this crash of Roswell was um, to contact uh, this nurse as one of the 3,000 members of their force. You get the idea that each of those 3,000 personnel are, are extremely valuable um, personnel, and um, they've been spending a lot of time and effort to try to find them and, and recover them. So, Do you think then, with Matilda passing away with the awareness that she had then, do you think that would have allowed her to go home without being stuck in the reincarnational cycle. Well, that's that's my personal speculation. I mean, the in, logical inference would be, uh, you know, when you read all the way through to the end of the book and you realize that, oh my gosh, she's now aware that she's um, she's a member of the domain as a spiritual entity, and she's continued to communicate with uh, Errol and the Domain telepathically since for the, over the last 60 years and that she has regained some of her memory of her of her true identity and is able to resume some of her duties as a personnel in her original position with the Domain Force and return to active duty to some degree, um, although not 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 physical body, of course, but as a spiritual entity. Um, which you learn in the course of the book that the domain considers uh, every sentient being to be uh, an immortal spiritual being, and therefore not subject in the long run to the effects of of um, inhabiting one body or another, or living on one planet or another, or one time or place. But you you are in fact immortal and eternal, and you always have been, and you will continue to be so. Um, so from that point of view, um, it's kind of like the, you know, the mission in part was sent to not only to um, help recover her individually as a member of that organization, but I think also to make the information uh, about the, the current situation on Earth uh, known to as many people as possible. And Essentially, this is what the nurse asked me to do. She said, here's this material, and if perhaps you could do whatever you can do to make it known to people. So I agreed to, to do that, and you know, I don't have very many resources, but I did publish the book, and 
Uh, it has been translated now into seven or eight other languages and is currently being translated into Chinese, Japanese, and a number of other languages. Uh, a couple of audiobooks have been produced in two different languages. Um, there's a website for the book. Uh, there's a film option. Uh, production being uh, created uh, based on the book. Uh, I wrote a science fiction book based on the information in this book. So I'm doing whatever I know how to do uh, to to make the information known, and I published the book for free on the internet the same day it was published as a printed book, um, all in an effort to, to try to just make it available, because um, that's just what the nurse had asked me to do, and it makes yeah. sense to me that that's a good thing to do. And for those who didn't really get the title, the title of the book is called Alien Interviews. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right now, Lawrence, and let me come back. I would like to go into the situation on Earth and exactly what has happened to humanity. So okay. just stay tuned for a moment. Okay. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. And welcome back now to our show with our special guest, Lawrence Spencer, and the author of nine wonderful books, as well as the book Alien Interview, which we are talking about today. So, Lawrence, based on the book and everything that you have obviously learned throughout the course of your own journey, can you give our listeners uh, a summary of what has happened to humanity and where we are at the current time in terms of, um, you know, our ability to be immortal, as you just recently uh, mentioned, uh, to be intact with our true, I call it our true organic self, you know, but... Tell, tell our listeners what what Matilda has expressed with what has happened to humanity and how we got trapped here. Yeah, the um, what the information revealed in the interview transcripts describes in some detail um, the current uh, kind of political situation, as you will, on Earth that has existed for some very long time. Um, in the course of, of the uh, invasion and exploration of this area of the galaxy by the domain forces who are essentially here to invade and take over this part of the physical universe from wherever they came, some other universe, galaxy, dimension, doesn't really say exactly. Um, during during the, the course of that invasion, as I mentioned, they established uh, a base in the Himalaya Mountains, uh, uh, principally, they established bases on the, the backside of the moon and in the asteroid belt and on Venus and perhaps other places as kind of, um, um, you know, as part of their continuing exploration or, or invasion of the universe. They set up like supply depots or communication systems or what have you. Um, but during the, the course of that operation, um, about 8500 BC, they established a base in the, in the, under the top of one of the mountains on the Himalayas, covered by a, uh, some sort of a force screen. This was attacked and destroyed by the 
existing space fleet that was operating um, and controlling this planet at that time. And those members were captured, destroyed, and put into memories erased and put into bodies on this planet. So in the subsequent efforts of the domain to to find out what happened to their personnel and um, bring them back, uh, uh, a number of subsequent missions were sent out to locate them, and each, in each case, these personnel also disappeared. Eventually, they discovered that what was going on was that the members of their force were being killed and captured and given amnesia and put into biological bodies on Earth as part of a pre-existing um, system that had been set up by the old empire on this planet for a very, very long time before that, uh, and that Earth was in fact being used as a prison planet. Um, that's the word that they use, and that's a very appropriately descriptive word of, of describing the situation on this planet. So, in their in their um, investigations, they discovered more and more and more the details of exactly how that works and how the prison system is set up. You have to realize that when they're talking about uh, prisons, they're talking about prisons for spiritual beings. And they consider, by their own uh, experience and their own ability, to operate without bodies, inside bodies or outside bodies, either one, and to communicate telepathically and operate their spacecraft through through direct thought um, and so forth. They have a very deep and intimate understanding of the fact that every every sentient being is in fact an immortal spiritual being and as such has um, potentially unlimited power to to operate and create um, manifestations in the physical universe or create the physical universe or alter it or what have you. Um, so the uh, apparently the political government, the entity that existed, which they refer to as the old empire, um, had long since decided to use Earth as a as a prison plan because it's very very remote uh, from the center of the seat of government for this galaxy or that particular governmental entity, and because Earth as a planet is very very volatile, it uh, has uh, earthquakes and tsunamis and the, the continent, the land masses drift all over the place and crash into each other. It's not a, it's not a sustainable piece of real estate that any, you know, long-lasting civilization would consider uh, building their civilization on because because of the volatility of the planet. It changes too much. It's not stable. So it was decided some very, very long time ago that this would be used as a prison planet for that reason and other reasons, um, and that everyone that this government decided was um, undesirable for them, for whatever reason, because they were a political enemy, a military enemy, uh, uh, some kind of, a, you know, incurable psychotic, uh, a murderer, a pervert, or whatever, uh, as well as uh, beings that they consider undesirable who don't fit into their economic, political uh, slave system, so to speak, of uh, totalitarian kind of government. Anybody who um, refused to, you know, acquiesce to the, the government or pay taxes or anybody who's a free thinker or an artist, a musician, a creator, a manager, an inventor, 
all these kinds of beings, uh, the pilot says, were considered to be unwanted by this this uh, government, and and so they were killed, and their possessions were taken, and as a spiritual, they were they were taken off to Earth and given put through this process of uh, amnesia and uh, given in the place of their memory uh, false memories and uh, false ideas and, and so forth, and told that they that their this Earth is their home planet. And this is where you're from, and you, you know, everyone evolved here, and everything evolved here, and blah, 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 theory of evolution. Um, and many, many other similar, uh, false ideas that were, that are very, very conducive to the maintenance of a, of a prison planet, which essentially is a kind of an illusion that makes it appear to be something other than it actually is. So, the, by way of, and in the course of their investigation, they discovered that indeed the the planet was set up and has been being used as a prison planet to this day, um, and that the the earlier civilizations of planet Earth, including um, you know all the the monumental structures that you see all around the world in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and South and Central America, and all the pyramid civilizations, the huge, massive stone block buildings that Apparently, um, have a, no explanation as to who built them, where they came from, when they were built, how they were built. And archaeologists have been puzzling over this for for centuries. Um, the pilot essentially says that you know nobody's ever going to get to the bottom of this because the reason being is because they're they're not authentic. They're they're intentionally built the way they are as as a kind of false facade, kind of a um, uh, a shell game, kind of a way to to make it appear that there's an evolutionary civilization on Earth of human beings, um, when in fact there is no evolution on Earth of human beings. The, all of these civilizations were installed uh, around the same time by the same people, the prison planet system, to make it appear that um, more ancient civilizations existed. The actual archaeological record, you discover, in fact, there is no uh, real evolutionary evidence of an evolutionary history of human beings on Earth. All of these ancient civilizations, particularly Egypt is the most obvious one because it's been explored in the greatest detail, is that all of a sudden, inexplicably, almost virtually overnight in the scheme of, of time time on Earth, these these very, very highly advanced civilizations appeared almost by magic, with tremendous technology and uh, ability to build these things and complete structures of civilization put in place almost by magic overnight. Clothing, makeup, customs, religions, languages, very, very sophisticated mathematics, uh, transport, amazingly heavy, complex building materials across great distances, you know, thousands of tons, stone blocks, he's transported hundreds of miles, yeah. uh, you know, and to this day, nobody can figure out how it could be done, even with our, our modern construction implements and technologies. Yeah. Um, and this this occurred uh, concurrent, simultaneously, all around the planet. Yeah. Um, so, 
Let me ask the, you a question there. No, when, you, when you take a look at that as a mechanism of, a, of amnesia mechanism, right. uh, people, people on this planet look around and they say, well, oh, well, we must be from here because, look, there's all this, this history of ancient civilization, so we must have evolved on this planet. And this is our home, and this is where we came from. Well, this is, this is really a very clever trick. You have to admire the, yes. the ingenuity of creating um, an illusion for the inhabitants of the prison to make it appear as though there is no prison, that we've always been here, this is where we came from, and we've always been here forever and ever. But in actual fact, we've only really been here as spiritual beings for maybe uh, 2,000 years, 5,000 years, 10,000 years, you know, 20 or 30,000 years, no one knows for sure. And, and it's different for each individual being because each individual being was brought here and put in this prison at different times. Yes, that makes um, sense. And so that would also, you know, everyone has a different subjective experience of yeah. their their time on Earth and their and memories would, of Earth, which it, are yes, are false. Just hold on there, Lawrence, because I want to ask you a question about the uh, the Anunnaki and where it's coming from. Is that we've had several people on the show uh, recently too talking about the whole origins of humanity, really, and it seems to tie in what they're saying and what you're saying seems to tie in with the unfolding knowledge around the origin of humanity. And we've had Chrisanna Duran, for example, who is an ancient alien researcher, and she's written a book that explains about the galactic frequencies and changes in the core of the Earth and how all the standing stones and crop circles fit into all of that. And we've also had Gerald Clark on. And Gerald Clark, as you may know, is the author of a book on the Anunnaki. And what I want to ask you was, does what you just outlined as the Earth being a prison planet, does that tie in with the Sitchin's story of the origins of humanity by way of the Anunnaki? Does, does it all slot together? Does it make sense? Well, um, I'm, I'm afraid I, I don't know a great deal about um, the Anunnaki per se. I'm not a student of, of that sort of thing, but uh, I have been given enough information or studied it enough to to <clears throat> suppose uh, a coincidence or a tie together, in my own estimation, you know, not being an authority, I've, I've talked to other people who are tremendous. I did a radio show interview the other day with <clears throat> a man and his wife who have studied with Sitchin, Zachary Sitchin, for 12 years full time. And they're very, very expert in, this, in all of uh, his writing and so forth. So I can tell you what they told me, and because they're experts and I'm not, what they told me is they felt that the, the tie-in between what the pilot of the UFO discusses and what Zachariah Sitchin is writing about is that the domain force, when they found that their personnel were missing, they sent out several groups of their own personnel at various times in, in the distant past, um, around the time of the Sumerian civilization, uh, they started looking for them uh, about 10,000 years ago, or a little less than maybe uh, 8,500 8, years ago, uh, and sent various uh, investigative forces out to different parts of the world, on the land and under the oceans, uh, in the air and so forth around the planet, to try to, to locate their, their personnel. And one of the the, uh, the recovery of the rescue missions, so to speak, that was sent out was sent out in the form of 
um, Sumerian civilization and, and during that time. Uh, and the pilot says that they, the, the, you know, sort of the uniforms or the, the physical form that they manifested and the equipment they were using, electronic detection equipment being used by them to locate their missing members as spiritual beings to try to identify their, their spiritual fingerprints, so to speak, um, appeared to the local population as being um, godlike. Uh, because uh, they were using technology and so forth that was completely beyond the understanding of, of the local uh, population at that time, who were, you know, just prison, members of the prison class, and have amnesia, and have relatively little technology or understanding the average person's illiterate, and so on and so forth. So the legends and um, surrounding uh, what people refer to as the Anunnaki had in some part, anyway, to do with the, the missions sent out by members of the, of the domain looking for their own lost personnel. So uh, I think probably more than anything, there may be a, a coincidence um, uh, between what the, the Sumerian people observed and wrote about and so forth and the activities of the domain searching for their lost personnel using, you know, sophisticated electronic equipment Texting devices and obviously being um, not inhabitants, native inhabitants of the planet, and having you know wearing different kinds of clothing or whatever uh, would seem very mysterious and godlike to the, the local inhabitants. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, it seems that seems logical to me. So, what do you think today in our present time is the is the state of play between members of the old empire who have a vested interest in keeping us all asleep and under amnesia, uh, and, you know, the waking up process that humanity may be going through now. Can you comment on that? Yeah, um, I've, and a number of other people that I've talked to who are students of the alien material, uh, seem to think that there there is a very, very definite awakening uh, happening uh, in recent times, and part, partly due to phenomena that the, the pilot explained and the activities of the domain surrounding Earth. Um, apparently, um, the, the last vestiges of the old empire space fleet that, that were controlling the prison planet system were destroyed uh, about 12 150 A.D. Uh, in space battles surrounding the Earth. And, of course, the space battles that were witnessed by various civilizations on Earth throughout history and reports of uh, the, uh, the Manu and the you know, flying craft and all of this kind of activity that, that appear in just about all of the mythologies of Earth or all the histories of Earth, uh, reporting flying disks and all of this kind of thing. Uh, were really space battles happening between the, the old empire and the domain forces who were essentially at war with each other, I mean literally at war with each other because the domain is invading uh, with a military force into not just the solar system but throughout this galaxy and beyond and destroying uh, the military elements of the old empire which includes um, 
the, the military spacecraft that were monitoring this planet and this area. Um, so, and there's been an ongoing battle, uh, not only around the Earth in the skies, but uh, also on the Earth for control of the minds of men, so to speak, religious war, um, uh, particularly since the domain discovered that this planet's being used as a prison. They were doing whatever they could to help emancipate the beings uh, uh, trapped here. So this this conflict has gone on for some many thousands of years, since about um, 8,000 B.C. Or, or so. But the final, according to the pilot, the final battles uh, between the space weights were concluded in about 1250 A.D., and the domain prevailed, and there are no more elements of the uh, old empire prison system spacecraft left in this area. So she points out that beginning at that time, the, the influence of the old empire prison system was was diminished to a certain degree. It was uh, because of that destruction of their, their, their space fleet and so forth. The influences of amnesia and the uh, electronic mechanism that install false memories and hypnotic commands and so forth on the, the inmate population were diminished, at which point there was uh, a renaissance of invention and understanding and literature and the arts and all of this sort of thing, which is evident in the renaissance that we see uh, in our own civilization, you know, beginning of uh, certain breakthroughs in technology and so forth. Uh, in addition to that, the pilot says that um, certain members of the domain force that are stationed or operating in this vicinity um, as volunteers in their own time um, can come to Earth and inhabit a body and help contribute to um, adding more technology to the planet in, a, in an effort to um, create a situation where in the domain would have access to enough technology on the planet to be able to do something effective about rescuing their own personnel by breaking this, this uh, mechanisms that keep this amnesia, uh, hypnotic command sort of thing going on in perpetuity. Um, so one of one of those uh, she mentioned um, uh, the names of a number of different uh, inventors and so forth who uh, and different members of the domain and so forth who may have been influential in doing that, but the, the one that really stands out most for me is Nikola Tesla, who in the pilot mentions, I think there's one sentence in the book, she says that Nikola Tesla was an officer from the domain who came to Earth, um, which I thought was very interesting, and at that time I never, I didn't know anything about Nikola Tesla, but I started reading about Nikola Tesla, and the more I read about Nikola Tesla, the more I become absolutely fascinated. This guy, here is one of the most amazing, not only adventures, but one of the most amazing spiritual beings I've ever read about or heard about. Mm -hmm. I mean, guys, off the charts. Yeah, we have our own information on him because, as you may know, yeah. <laughs> we, we go into the Akashic Records. In fact, very recently, we did a session on a Sunday where we explored the famous deceased and one of them was Nikola Tesla, and we found that he was on a plane of existence that um, had chosen to come to Earth on a particular mission 
but he wasn't from here at all. There was various other important little pieces of information which tie in with what you're saying there. Wow. But, yeah. Now, here's something interesting. Uh, we, we've, we've listened to various interviews you've done, and we've, we've read your books and so on, and it's a, such a huge subject, Lawrence, that we could go in multitudes of different directions, and it's very hard to pin down and stay on track. So just for the sake of keeping us clear about what we want to try and achieve today, which really is clarity around, you know, the whole alien business, not to question whether it exists or not, or whether there's any truth to the book or not, or the transcripts or not. That's not what we're interested in. It's what's happening on the planet to people, to humanity now, and why there is so much power and control, why people feel lost, why people feel controlled, why people want to control, why there's so much destruction, why there's want to con yeah and and part of the solar system i'm curious about that and if you could just address that for us and if you could include also lawrence if you wouldn't mind the whole business of the sexual reproduction why it became necessary for the physical sexual reproduction the way it is experienced on earth right now mm, okay <laughs> yeah that's that's a very very interesting um, component of the entire prison planet idea. Yeah. Uh, the subject of biological engineering, um, the, the pilot, there's a, I think there's a whole chapter of the chapter, well, it's a chapter of the book, but it's a section of the interviews, transcripts, where she describes kind of the history, not only of Earth, but uh, of uh, the physical universe as a whole and civilizations of, of beings, uh, spiritual beings in this universe and other universes before the beginning of this universe. Uh, and what she says, kind of uh, very, very forthrightly, is that the phenomena of physical bodies um, in general, not just biological bodies, but physical bodies in general, were pr produced um, uh, by means of various technologies developed over the many, many trillions of years. Uh, in this in this uh, physical universe, by these bees, or she is bee is the word that she used to refer to an immortal spiritual being. Um, she says one of the things that all immortal spiritual beings have in common, being immortal and timeless and capable of um, uh, you know creating any manifestation that they they can think of, literally. Um, is that beings tend to get bored after some billions of years of doing the same thing, knowing the outcome of every game, and so on and so forth. So uh, as part of that, um, finding a solution or remedy to the, the problem of being uh, immortal and being bored, um, that various um, kinds of bodies were built and constructed and so forth that uh, spiritual beings could inhabit. Uh, in order to experience different phenomena than they experience as a spiritual being, or essentially to limit their own ability and perception uh, as kind of a kind of a game. Um, and during the course of, of that, uh, you know, the creation of bodies over a very 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 long period of time in this universe, um, evolved down to a point where um, Biological bodies were being produced, and biological bodies have certain sensations, uh, uses, and so forth that other types of bodies don't have, and so forth. 
that the body that biological bodies in general, or bodies in general, are being produced in factories by laboratory technicians and so forth to provide it to various different uh, kinds of planetary systems and planetary environments, you know, to be used or, or not by, by spiritual beings in various forms. Um, but it, it reached a point where they were having to continually manufacture new bodies and they wore out and replaced them. So there was a, a group of biological engineers who just came up with the idea that um, what if you could make the the, the life forms or the, the body forms self-replicating, then you could uh, you wouldn't have to continue manufacturing them over and over again, and, and also you would have a new a whole new kind of activity or game to play. So it was agreed upon um, that uh, this be done, and they invented the science of it, and they figured out over a very very long period of time, I gather, uh, how to make life forms um, self-replicating through the sexual process. So they invented um, a series of technical features that the pilot describes in the transcripts which which makes biological self-reproduction possible uh, in, in many, many different life forms. Of course, uh, most of the life forms we see on this planet are, are sexual to some degree. They, they're able to reproduce by um, Interactivity between members of their own species, but this isn't this isn't the the native condition of life forms in this universe. I mean, you don't have to have, and the officers and the personnel of the domain forces themselves are not sexual entities. They don't inhabit biological biological excuse me biological bodies. Uh, they avoid biological bodies mm-hmm. um, purposely because they're. You know, they're fragile and destructive and they contain these built-in programs and mechanisms and stimulus response, um, chemical, electrical triggers, that's the word she uses, to describe the mechanism that causes uh, a biological life form to suddenly uh, have the impulse to reproduce. Uh, And it's very, very much... um, uh, you know, like a like a horse smells the, the male horse smells the the odor of the chemical scent of the female horse, and a program starts running, uh, which is triggered automatically by the chemical, electrical, muscular, nervous system of the body that the being is inhabiting, and overwhelmed by these mechanisms to reproduce. And there's nothing that the horse can do to prevent itself from mating. And the same types of mechanisms are built into the biological body that human beings inhabit on Earth. So this became, uh, for from the point of view of the prison planet operators, um, an advantage to them because if they could put people, uh, if these into, or spiritual beings into a biological body and convince them that this is their native condition, that that you are a biological body, you've always been a biological body, you always will be, this is normal, and this is natural, and it's an evolutionary thing, and you're, that, and convince people of this, that that would help sustain the the mechanism and machinery of the prison planet by its deception. Um, It's a very clever, elaborate deception, to say the least. 
But it does contain this element of kind of creating a prison cell within the prison, whereby if you're inhabiting a biological body, which is full of all of these pre-programmed uh, machinery and mechanisms and chemicals and electrical impulses and so forth that overwhelm your your own sensibilities and wishes and desire to the degree that you're you're forced to reproduce and get married and have babies and spend all of your life working hard and making money to feed the babies and clothe the babies and all of these sort of things. You don't have time to think about anything because you could be being a biological body in self-replication process. So it kind of contributes to the to the mechanism of the, of the prison planet and um, of course, you know, from the point of view of human beings who don't know anything else or don't remember, rather, who they really are or where they came from and who brought them here and so forth, it all seems very normal and natural, and they make a fun game of it. Or maybe they don't make a fun game of it. Uh, right. So, so it tends to be rather tragic. So, Lance, what are some of the evidences that a person is waking up and remembering? Well, it seems to me I, I can only really answer that question from my own observation and what I've been told by lots and lots of other people. I received, I've received thousands of emails from people around the planet who have read this book and relate their personal experiences and stories to me. Um, and what I seem to be getting more and more is that people are, are remembering uh, who, who they are and where they came from in their past lives. And they remember that they're not from this planet. They can remember previous lives or existences or uh, levels of existence or awareness uh, and ability far, far above and beyond and far before um, they were ever occupying a body on Earth. Uh, so it seems to me that this kind of awakening, the nurse actually mentions it in her in her her last letter. She says. Um, it's really, really important that we remember who we really are um, as spiritual beings. Uh, and this is one of the key ingredients to being able to escape from this artificially created prison planet system wherein we are inhabiting biological bodies instead of being uh, who we really are as, as mortal beings without the need of having the body to operate or perceive and communicate and so forth. To remember who we really are. And it seems to me that that process is, is accelerating uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the past several hundred years, especially since 1250 B.C., but I think moreover since um, kind of the turn of the century, around uh, 1900 or thereabouts, um, uh, in the Western world, there's a huge acceleration of this awareness, and it seems to be growing faster and faster and faster as communication opens yeah. up. We're able to communicate with each other more freely, and we're able to talk with each other. Right. I don't know where you're located on the planet. I'm in California. Yeah, um, we're also in California. There you are. But we could be okay. anywhere I, on the world, yeah. Now, here's the thing, though. Yeah, we, I mean, I talk to people all over the planet, communicate with each other all over the planet. It was made possible by Nikola Tesla. Yes, right. Yeah, which I think is very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Now, and we, I don't think it's a coincidence. We, we do, as you know, various... Uh, forays into the field of consciousness through the uh, through the Akashic records, which we're familiar with being able to enter and exit through that field of awareness. Now, one of the things that we did one time a few years ago in Ireland, we put out uh, the, uh, a group, um, 
the possibility of people asking the question, who am I and why am I here? And you know, Lawrence, that was the one subject which was a complete and total sellout. It, we were stunned by the numbers of people who wanted the answer to that question, who am I and why am I here? And um, now it, it makes sense that people would want to know that. So when you posit the question about, you know, where did we come from? Or when you mentioned about Matilda McElroy saying that the most important thing is to find out who who we are. From your experience in the exploration of consciousness and spiritual awareness, where where did we come from and who are we? Well, the um, that's a good question. And the, 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 the pilot of the craft that was interviewed actually describes this. Um, in some detail, essentially, what she she says is that as uh, immortal spiritual beings, um, we uh, originated as conscious, self-conscious entities in the very, very dim reaches of uh, before time, uh, and came into being essentially uh, through a decision to be. Uh, she 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 uses the word is be i s dash b e which is a word that she contrived based on the idea that uh, the only reason that a spiritual being exists is because they made at some point of their own origin the decision to be, uh, and this con- decision continues in the, the eternal now. It's an it's a eternal, never-ending decision to be, and because of that decision, they, they are, or they they exist in an ever-continuing state of is. So the simplicity is that as a as an immortal spiritual being, you you are eternal just because you decide that you are, and you exist continually because you make that decision um, in every moment. But as part of that, the common characteristics of, a, of immortal spiritual beings, which she she refers to by the word is be, um, the common characteristic is that. These are the, the creators and co-creators of universes, not just the physical universe, but any kind of universe, an illusory, thought-generated, uh, um, self-generated idea, imagination, uh, construct, whatever you want to call it, uh, purely from, based on the origins and desires and thoughts and fantasies and so forth of each individual being. But over a long period of time, um, these bees have uh, sort of gotten together and agreed upon certain kinds of uh, uh, rules and regulations and, and uh, arrangements of, of various universes, which um, over, you know, took many, many trillions of years or, I mean, beyond time, there's no measure of time involved here, really, um, have, have Built, created universes, including the physical universe, which seems to be a never, never-ending, continually expanding universe of solid matter and energy particles generated by thought. Uh, and quantum physicists are discovering this more and more every day that the universe really seems to be a construct of, of thought. And of course, anybody who's ever read anything about um, uh, Nikola Tesla and uh, energy, Nikola Tesla says, if you want to understand the mysteries of this universe, you have to understand energy, vibration, and frequency. Mm. Because the universe is built of those things, and it's all generated by thought. 
Thank you very much. I'm only interrupting you, Lawrence, because we're winding down and running out of time. But certainly that's a lot of the information we've gotten through the Akashic Records um, that are in my own books, which are transcripts of those sessions with Source. A summary of what we've covered today, to remind our listeners that we've been speaking with Lawrence Spencer, who wrote the Alien Interview book, uh, the material of Matilda McGill. And he started off talking today, Lawrence, about the nuclear bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima and how Matilda McElroy got involved in the Roswell crash and the protection programs of the USA and how she managed to hold on to that material for so long. You talked about the package of the alien interview transcripts that was sent from Ireland and how you got them and how you turned it around into a book. And then you spoke a little about the self-administered euthanasia of Matilda McElroy and the subsequent suppression of the alien material all around the planet. You talked at length about the origin of the domain and the beginnings of alien contact as we know it and the bases that are on the dark side of the moon and in various places around the earth like the Himalaya mountains and the efforts that the domain did to retrieve the aliens that led to the Roswell crash in the first place. And you spoke then about Earth as a prison planet and about inhabiting a human body and that whole process. You spoke about the Anunnaki, Zachariah Sitchin, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, and then about the whole business of sexual reproduction, its origins and its impact on humanity even to this day. And then we spoke a little about the awakening process of humanity. And then in the last few minutes there, you spoke about our origins as self-aware consciousnesses, or ISBEs, as Matilda McElroy called them, in the eternal now as co-creators in the universe. And unfortunately, we do have to leave it there. We're coming to the end of our program, and we do want to thank you most sincerely for being with us today. And if you want to just give out very quickly, Lawrence, your contact details if people want to contact you and get hold of your book, Alien Interview. Wonderful. Yeah, there is a, w- a website and a blog uh, for the book at www.alieninterview.org. Uh, and the blog is alieninterview.org forward slash blog. Uh, and on those sites, you can read um, not only the information that's uh, contained in the book, but lots and lots of uh, supplemental information and footnotes and videos and things that have been given to me or that I've discovered during the past several years of continuing research uh, into the transcripts. So or, or on that site, you can order books, um, not only in English, but in different versions and different languages. Uh, there are There's an audio book available, very, very nicely produced audio book from okay. audible.com that's available. All right, so we, that's the place to go. All right. We do have to leave it there. We thank you so much, Lawrence. Till next Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific time, we send you our love, our blessings, and thank you for listening to myself, Ahanu, and Angel Rose on the Honest to God series. And as we say in Ireland, Slán, August Bannacht, Day Live Galea. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Angel Rose and Ahanu.